The Corinthians were caught up in a game of comparison over spiritual gifts. Where some more showy gifts and abilities were elevated above less impressive gifts. For example, tongues or miracles were viewed as more impressive than gifts of service or administration. So Paul has written this chapter to address this issue of greatness within the church. As he ends his previous section, what we would call chapter 12, remember the chapter and verse divisions were not original. At the end of chapter 12, he ends that section by saying, I will show you a more excellent way. So I would ask you this question, do you want to be great? Do you want to know a more excellent way? Do you want to know the path to Christian greatness? That path to Christian greatness is through love. This message today is divided into three points. We have one slide for each point, so we can go to the first point now. The three points are, number one, the importance of love, verses one through three, the importance of love. Secondly, the definition of love. And thirdly, the endurance of love. The importance of love, the definition of love, and the endurance of love. First, looking at point number one, the importance of love, verses one through three, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What Paul is saying here in this first paragraph, these first three verses, is that possession of incredible gifts are worthless if you do not have love. He's speaking to an audience that is incredibly gifted. They're incredibly talented. They're very wealthy in resources and skills and abilities. But he's saying that those gifts without love are worthless. And he names four of them. So we will name four of them. The first one mentioned is tongues. He says, though I have, though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Tongues of men and angels. This is probably the text where those who advocate for the non-language view of tongues get their support. See, there's two main views of the gift of tongues. One would say that the gift of tongues is gift, the gift of languages, and then others say, no, tongues is this babbling sound, this heavenly language. It's the language of angels. And so they look to this verse to say, see, it's right there, tongues of men and angels. And angels have a different way, which sounds a lot like what you would see on the YouTube videos if you type in speaking in tongues. I I don't think that what you see on these YouTube videos are the languages of angels. But he's saying that even if I had these gifts, 
without love, it would be worthless. Imagine if you had the ability to speak in a language that you had never studied. Imagine that you could walk or take the train, you would take the train, to Jackson Heights, where there are so many different people groups, so many different languages, and you just walk down the street and you hear people speaking languages that you have never studied, but you can understand them and you can speak to them. You can communicate with them in their own language. That would be astounding. Then imagine that you came back to the church and you brought one of these new friends, these new acquaintances that you just met who speaks in these other languages and you're able to be the interpreter between this person and the rest of the church. That would be incredible. Now imagine that you could do that but you were a jerk. You could speak in a dozen different languages without having studied them, but you're just not a very nice person. You're rude, you're mean, you're unkind, you're insulting them, you're insulting people. That gift of tongues without love is just noise. It's empty clamor. The words used here are that of a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. If you've ever been in a place that has one, but I I think of like an Asian restaurant where they have a gong hanging by the front door. It might even have a little like hammer thing that you can smack it. If you have incredible gifts, but you don't have love, and your gifts are... Gifts of oratory, the gift of the ability to speak or the ability to entertain a crowd or to tell jokes or to emcee a party. And you have the ability to get people to listen to you when you're speaking, but you don't have love, then when you talk, it's worse than that um, cartoon, like Daffy Duck voice. It's worse than that. It's like a gong sound every time you open your mouth. It's this crashing, unpleasant noise that we would rather not hear. Our words are incredibly important. Having speaking gifts without love is a a net negative. The second one mentioned is also a speaking gift, and that is prophecy. Verse 2 says, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. The conclusion is, without love, I am nothing. Imagine if you could go to one of these fortune tellers here in New York City, and the lady's like, oh, you want a fortune? Want me to read your palm? Want me to tell you what your future holds? And you're like, only if I can tell you a fortune afterwards. And so she's like, okay, we'll pay up and we'll, we'll make this happen. So you give her your $10 and she makes her prophecy. And then you look at her and you say, well, I have a prophecy for you. And you tell her some crazy, unexpected thing. And then it actually happens. And then you come into church the next morning 
Let's say that you are Trenton. And so Trenton comes into church and he looks at Giselle and he says, Giselle, I just have this impression that the Metro North is going to crash tonight. And I don't know if you were planning on taking the Metro North home, but don't because it's going to crash. So don't take the Metro North. And then tonight, lo and behold, the Metro North crashes. The train that she was going to take, even at the scheduled time, she was planning on taking it. And then Trenton goes on and he looks at, at, I don't know, Anais. And he says, Anais, I just, something about your mom's car. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but there's something, something bad is going to happen with your mom's car. And then, lo and behold, your mom's car catches on fire. But you weren't in it because you listened to his prophecy. And so it just like spontaneously combusted, you know, like those electric vehicles. That would be incredible. Now, imagine that Trenton had this ability to prophesy and to accurately predict future events that you didn't know and he didn't know. There would be no way of knowing. But he has that ability without a shred of love. This is the most unpleasant thing. You would not want to go to him to ask for his advice or his suggestions about the future because it's just a brutal conversation. It's unpleasant. Why would you want to to go and have that conversation and only to have him insult, insult you the whole time? This was happening in the Corinthian church. There are people with these incredible gifts, but they're using them without a shred of love. And so their exercise of these gifts, of tongues and of prophecies, and their their ability to explain mysteries and knowledge which are otherwise unknown is not practiced with love, but is practiced with the opposite of love. The third gift mentioned is the gift of faith. If I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. There are a number of examples throughout the Bible centralized in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 of people with faith, people with remarkable amounts of faith, or as we read the stories and we're like, actually, like, I did not have that much faith. But the Lord looked at him and said, wow, that's some great faith. I think of Abraham, who actually doubted God. But the story is retold in such a way that he is a hero of faith. I think there's an entirely separate message in there about the intercession of Christ from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 but that's a whole other sermon for another day. But this gift of faith where Joshua and Caleb would, would look at a mountain and say, God, give me this mountain. To walk into an unknown place, to walk into a dangerous place, and without wavering, have confidence in the promises of God. To have faith to remove mountains, but doing that without love. It profits nothing. Imagine that you were a superhero Christian or that you knew a superhero Christian. You knew someone who just was so powerful in their spirituality and their walk with Christ and their knowledge of scripture and their speaking ability and even in their faith, but they were a total jerk. You don't want to be around them. 
You don't want to be in their small group. You'd rather die than have coffee with them. It's like taking medicine, hanging out with them. To have these gifts, but without love, it's completely pointless. It's empty. It's worthless. The fourth point mentioned here is the gift of giving. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Have you ever known someone who is very wealthy? Have you ever known someone who liked to give? But they like to give not for the benefit of others. They like to give for their own ego. They like to give to make sure that other people knew that they were the one who gave. Or they gave and then they held it over your head. They reminded you again and again and again that you are indebted to them because of what you gave them. I don't know about you, but I would rather not receive such a gift. If the gift isn't truly a gift, if it doesn't come with no strings attached, then it's not a gift. It's, it's a payment. It's a transaction. This example given is giving away all of my goods to feed the poor. The most giving you could give, you take your bank account and suppose there's something in it and you empty it. You say, I would like to withdraw all my money, turn it into cash, and now I'm going to walk out with a suitcase or a bag or a sack or whatever, depending on how much money you've got. I'm walking out with 20s and now I'm going to go feed the poor. So you go to a a line of people waiting for a soup kitchen and you just start handing out money. But you're not doing it to help them. You're doing it to look good. You brought your own photographer. You brought your own film crew. You're Facebook living this event. You want to make sure that the New York Times and the New York Post and that all the, the papers and websites are broadcasting this generosity. And you're also telling each person that you give money to, you're telling them your name. You're saying, remember, this came from Trenton. Paul doesn't stick with just your wealth or Trenton's wealth. He, he goes on to, to not even giving of your possessions, but giving of yourself, your own life. If you were to, to lay down your life as a sacrifice to die for someone else, but you're doing that not out of love, it profits you nothing. Just like to encourage you with some caution, for there is a temptation to be more spiritual than God and more spiritual than the Bible in some ways of thinking where you take something that's true, but then you run with it further than what God actually has done. And that relates to this idea that some would call a rational self-interest, that the Bible actually speaks of rewards. And that seeking rewards or desiring rewards or desiring your own good, your own welfare, your own benefit 
is not only good, it's normal. And so he says, without love, it profits me nothing. Why? Because the expectation is that you want to profit. You want that which is eternally good. You want heavenly rewards, and it is appropriate to desire heavenly rewards. To not want that means there's something wrong with you. Something is off in your way of thinking. You've been influenced by some philosophy that is more godly than God. But the Lord tells us that we should do all of these things in love, knowing, reminding us that there is profit, there is benefit to us if we serve with right motives, if we serve out of love. So our Main point under this is the possession of incredible gifts are worthless if you do not have love. Think of the most talented athlete with limitless potential, the strongest or fastest athlete on the entire team, but he's a jerk. He's a miserable teammate. He's not kind to others. He's so full of himself. He doesn't celebrate his teammate's success. He also doesn't help lift up the failures of his teammates. No, all he cares about is himself. You hit a home run and he's mad that the stadium is cheering for you. You hit a 410-foot home run and his home run was only 400 feet and he's jealous and sulking in the corner about it. He's not happy until you're not happy. Your team calls the star rookie up from the minor leagues and suddenly the spotlight is away from him and it's onto someone else. So now he has to make sure that he puts that star rookie in his place. When the veteran in the middle of a potential career-ending slump is struggling, this arrogant star athlete does not go over and give him a word of encouragement. He does not offer to do some extra batting practice with him. No, all he thinks about is himself. He doesn't say thank you, and he doesn't say, I'm sorry. These are words not in his, category, in his vocabulary. The world would call him a narcissist. When someone does something nice for him, he acts entitled. Well, of course you did that for me. I'm so great. I deserve it. When he hurts someone, he he finds a way to blame them. He doesn't apologize, and he certainly doesn't apologize without being forced to. Though I am attractive, though I am smart, though I am rich, though I am well-connected, though I have the best education, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. The person will say, oh no, I, I love them. But by that, they mean that they have a sense of fondness towards them. But it doesn't actually lead to kindness towards the person. Or more Pointedly, it doesn't prevent you from being a cruel tyrant towards them. But you say you love them? Well, it doesn't profit anything. I don't care how smart you are if you're a jerk. I don't care how beautiful you are if you are cruel. I don't care how rich you are if you are unkind. If you use your talents and gifts to cause harm to other people, your gifts are for the worse, not for the better. Please consider this, all the things that I've just said. 
there are not many reasons why Jesus threatens to close a church. But this is the reason Jesus threatens to close the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. You have persevered, and you have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Therefore, From where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's some shocking things in this paragraph. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but what we realize through reading this, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, is that Jesus will actually tolerate with tremendous patience and long-suffering a great many things. What you find through reading these stories of the seven churches, Jesus will tolerate a great many things, including bad theology. He will tolerate in some way By tolerate, I don't mean approve. But he will tolerate idolatry and immorality more than he tolerates a doctrinally sound church that doesn't love. Jesus will tolerate with tremendous patience and long-suffering a great many things, including bad theology, idolatry, and immorality more than he tolerates a doctrinally sound church that doesn't love. To the doctrinally sound church that lacks love, Jesus says, I will put out your candle if you don't repent of your lovelessness. That's serious. Because frankly, that's talking about churches like ours. We don't tolerate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We know what that is and we're against it. We know right, we know wrong. We don't compromise on truth. And we walk around the city and we see churches that do. We see churches with flags on the front proclaiming their creeds and their religions. And we look at them and we see this is a synagogue of Satan. It's a place that does not preach the gospel. Yet they continue with the 12 people that are inside. But then you know the stories of church after church after church after church that was planted and established. The lamp was set up, the candlestick was lit, but then it went out in churches that stood for truth, churches that didn't tolerate error, churches that were full of truthers, as it were, What happened? The Lord put the lamp out. 
in the early days, three, three years ago, um, talking to John Benzinger about these things, we had lots of conversations in the early days. Um, one of the things that he referenced was a conversation that he had with uh, a fellow that some of you know or know of named Kofi. And this guy named Kofi Adubohan, I think his last name is, uh, has a similar relationship to John that I do. Um, but he's in the Northwest, not the Northeast. And um, Kofi is not planting a church, but is trying to revitalize a church. And he was very fearful in the early days of this church plant and <clears throat> particularly fearful of killing the church because he's coming into this messy situation and, and it's just not great and he needs to make a bunch of changes and he's afraid. And John told him, Kofi, you are not as powerful as you think you are. You don't have the ability to close a church. Only God does that. Only God can do that. So don't be afraid. And that, frankly, just, just some inside baseball talk right now, like looking under the hood of a pastor's mind. That was comforting to me. To think about that and to realize, no, you need to do what you need to do. Take the stands that you need to take. Make the decisions you have to make without fear of the consequences because you know that the Lord is the only one who can close the church. And so if you you do the right thing and let the chips fall where they may, don't be afraid of what some person in the pew is going to say. Sure, they're going to say something. Sure, they're going to send you an email or call you or say they want to have a meeting. Pastor, we need to talk. Whatever. Don't be afraid of that. Do what you have to do, knowing that the Lord is the one who establishes and builds his church, and the Lord is the only one who can close his church. So you, pastor, don't actually have the ability to close a church. Sure, you might preside over a meeting in which a church is closed, but it's if and when that happens, it's the Lord doing it. That was extra, not in my notes. So to the doctrinally sound church that lacks love, Jesus says, I will put out your candle if you don't repent of your lovelessness. Which brings us then into our second point, the definition of love. What is love? If it's so important, if it's so crucial that Jesus takes it this seriously, we need to know what love is. The world defines love in a way that runs the opposite of the way that God defines love. And if you are a new Christian or new to Christianity, you need to be aware of this because this is one of the many, many things in your worldview, in your paradigm, in your mindset that's going to need to be completely overhauled. You're going to need to swap out your old definition of love for God's definition of love. The The way the world defines love runs the opposite to how God defines it. Here's just a few examples of false ideas about love. Worldly love would say, love is lust. Love is lust. Well, what is that? It's erotic infatuation. It's covetousness that is sexual in its tone. It is sexual desire. And to say, that is Love. Another way that the world defines love is love is passion. 
tied to lust, but not identical. An intense feeling of warm emotion acting upon the lust. The hormones that are set off or firing on all cylinders when you are in the moment. Let me assure you that that is not love. The fact that you may have passion for someone that you are with does not mean that you love them. It means that your hormones are working. A third example of worldly love is love is transaction. When someone does something for me, I tell them I love them in return. Even if it's just saying I love you, so then you say I love you back. Or think about Christmas when you were a small child and a distant relative who you don't even know gives you a gift. They give you a Christmas present and your mom or dad says, go say thank you to Uncle Benny. So you say, thank you, Uncle Benny. Say, I love you. I love you. Why? Why did that whole thing just happen? Well, because he gave you a gift. Because he gave you a, a thing. So there, there was this transaction involved. Another way of thinking of love in a, in a worldly way is viewing love like being a fan. Like a fan of a sports team. This is a shallow, good vibe towards someone or something. Now, maybe you're from Ohio or Michigan, and for you, it's not shallow. It's part of your DNA. I love my favorite sports team. I I can't name any of the players, but I have a general disposition of fondness towards them. But it's not that serious. If they lose a game, well, I didn't even know because I wasn't paying attention. If they lose a game that I attended, I don't really care because I wasn't paying attention and didn't even know the score throughout the game. But here we are, and I'm saying, go sports team. I love that team. This shallow good vibes is not God's definition of love. Building off of that, the world would, would, would define love as a feeling. Similar to the the like that I just talked about with this shallow good vibes, but more so. Think of when you like someone. You have a positive feeling towards them. When they walk into the room, you're glad that they're here. You maybe feel a giddy sense of nervous excitement or butterflies. That's also not love. I'm sure if I was a scientist, I could explain the, the, the deal with like your, your heart rate rising and your palms getting sweaty and why that's happening and how your adrenaline is factored into this whole thing. None of that's love. And then last, the last one that I've listed, which is tied to the transaction, is that love is self, a self-referential feeling. I love you means I feel good because of what you offer me. Now, these are just a few examples that I thought of of worldly love, but in terms of the concept of love from the, the scriptures, 
we must admit, we must pause for a second and acknowledge that there are at least four different kinds of love in the biblical view. There's a very famous book called The Four Loves written on this concept. These four are, in Greek, storge, phileo, eros, and agape. Storge is S-T-O-R-G-E, storge, which is familial love, like siblings or parents or you to your cousin. Familial love. Secondly, phileo. Brotherly love, but it's a friendship. Think of Jonathan and David in the Bible. Thirdly, eros is a sexual or erotic love designed to exist between a husband and wife. And fourth is agape. Now, I will acknowledge that of these first three mentioned, there is some overlap between them, between these three points, and some of the definitions I gave earlier as worldly love. That's not the point. The point is, Agape. Agape love is the highest form of love. It is the form of love that is most deeply and actually Christian. It is God's heart towards us. It is the Trinity's love for each other. It is our love for God in return. And it is the love that God calls us to have for each other as Christian love. Normal Christian love. Not something remarkable, not something exceptional, just the ordinary day in, day out life of love in your heart towards other Christians because this is the love that God has loved you with. Godly love stands in the greatest possible contrast to worldly love. Godly love is defined, agape love is defined for us in our text here in point number two in verses four through seven this way. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you were to summarize these words, to summarize these points and to tie them all together in one simple word, love is not ultimately a feeling. Love is sacrifice. So if you say you love someone, but you're not willing to sacrifice, you're lying. You're kidding yourself, or you're trying to manipulate them. Don't say you love someone, but you won't pick their laundry up off the ground. Don't say you love someone, but you won't pick them up from a place where they need picked up from.
Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not easily provoked, does not think evil of others, doesn't rejoice at sin, but instead it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It's patient. It believes all things, believing the best about someone. It hopes all things, hoping for the best, giving the benefit of the doubt, and it endures all things. Paul has listed these here very clearly and plainly because the Corinthians were terrible at this on every point. And you can see it in the book. You can see it in 1 Corinthians. They were not patient with each other. Hence the whole situation with the Lord's table in chapter 11 where they're like, oh, well, I have my food and I'm going to eat this food too. And I'm, I'm not concerned about you who are coming late and you're going to be hungry. I don't care about you. I've got my own agenda. The Corinthians were not patient. They were not kind. They were full of envy. They liked to boast. They bragged in their own gifts, in their own exploits, in their own abilities. They were very puffed up. They were quite rude to each other. They only thought about their own advantage, only thinking about what they want. And then they were easily offended. They had paper-thin skin. They were very offensive to others, but they were also at the same time easily offended. And that's, by the way, the way it works. Those two things are package deal. People who are very offensive are, nine times out of nine, very easily offended. They liked to think evil of others. They rejoiced at sin. They hoped that people would have a nice juicy story of something evil happening that they could get excited about. They didn't particularly care about the truth, weren't, weren't interested in that. They weren't patient. They weren't bearing with one another's weaknesses and infirmities. They weren't believing the best about other people. They weren't hoping for the best about others, but rather believing the worst. And they certainly did not endure all things for others. The positive form of this, love, being patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not puffed up, etc. This type of love is the bread and butter of the Christian experience. This is to be the normal stuff of the Christian life. Love does not boast, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not easily provoked. Could it be said of you? Would those who know you, those who know you best, could they insert your name into this paragraph? Could they say, Jane is patient and kind? Could they say, Jane does not envy or boast? Jane is not puffed up. Jane does not behave rudely. She does not seek her own, is not easily provoked. Jane doesn't think evil of others. She doesn't rejoice at sin. She rejoices in the truth. Jane bears all things patiently. She believes all things. She hopes all things and she endures all things. Could your friends say that about you? Or is the opposite 
more accurate. Jane is impatient and unkind. Jane is full of envy and boasting. Jane is arrogant and rude. Jane only seeks her own. She is easily provoked. Jane automatically assumes evil intent of others and then rejoices at their sin. She doesn't like it when they walk in the truth. Jane does not bear with anyone. She does not give them the benefit of the doubt. She hopes for their ruin and has no endurance for hardship. This, my friends, is a portrait of someone outside of Christ. It's a portrait of someone whose sin has been exposed by the dreadful terrors of the law's righteous demands. The purity of God's love stands in the brightest contrast to this lost man or woman's sin. And that picture is most brilliantly seen, the picture of love is most brilliantly seen in Jesus as he hung on the cross and as our sins were pinned to him there. No sermon on this text would be worth its weight in salt if it did not include the section I'm about to say to you, and that is this. Jesus was patient and kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. Jesus was not puffed up. Jesus did not behave rudely. Jesus did not seek his own. He was not easily provoked. That did not mean he was a pushover. Jesus did not think evil of others. He did not rejoice at their sin, but rather rejoiced in the truth. I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. Jesus quite literally bore all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, and endured all things for our sin and our salvation. As Paul is showing us this more excellent way than the sinful abuses of gifts, exercising gifts without love, if we remember the Corinthian context, that brings us into our third point. Our third point is the endurance of love. The endurance of love. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now faith, hope, love, these three, the greatest of these, is love. Jonathan Edwards' book titled Heaven, A World of Love sets up this concept for us very clearly, even if just by the title and you've never read the book. Heaven, A World of Love. Please know here in point number three, the endurance of love. That faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These gifts will pass away, but love abides forever. 
please know that the atmosphere of heaven is the atmosphere of love. Love according to the Bible's definition. The culture of heaven is this culture of love. The air that we will breathe in heaven is this air, the air of love. The aroma of Christ, this agape love, is the dominant feature of heaven. So let me ask you, have you ever walked into a home and felt a strong culture or a strong atmosphere in that home? Whether it's the decor whether it's the smell or the temperature, something about that space made a very strong impression by its features. Perhaps it was the leopard print wallpaper or the incense that was burning in the corner, causing you to cough uncontrollably. Or maybe it was the 16 cats and 12 dogs that were chasing each other around the apartment. Or the 20-foot fish tank that had a five-foot shark in it. I'm here to tell you that heaven's culture is not Dr. Doolittle's zoo. It's also not the culture, the aroma created by your friendly neighborhood street pharmacist. Drug dealer. But rather, heaven's atmosphere has, it it is a unique aroma. Yes, even the personality of heaven. The personality of heaven is this, love. Not touchy-feely, emotive, sappy love, but self-sacrificial love. Love that looks like Jesus. In heaven, the gifts required to build and to serve the church are no longer needed. But love abides forever. So, Christian, if you do not feel as though you possess much in the way of giftings, perhaps your intelligence is rather ordinary, or your looks rather plain, and you can think of nothing that you're actually good at. You can love. And you can invest in developing something that will endure forever. Not in your own strength, but in and through Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. If you're a Christian, you already have experienced that. You've already got a couple of feet started down this path. If you're not a Christian, this whole thing is kind of foreign to you. Don't worry so much about cultivating this culture of love in your own life. Worry about your own relationship with the Lord first. You recognize that he loved you and gave himself for you? If that thought has never hit you, if that thought has never become real to you, may it become real to you today that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not be condemned to hell, but rather would have eternal life. 
God loved you in such a way that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Out of his great love, this is the way he loved you. To redeem you from your sin that you could be saved. He did this out of love. Now, saints, believers, do you want to know the way to Christian greatness? It's the way of love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would instill these things deep in our hearts and minds. Challenge us in in ways that we need to be challenged and strengthen us and encourage us in ways that we need to be strengthened. I pray for those who are grappling with this concept, considering what's at stake, self-sacrifice being risky. Love that's shaped like a cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us and teach us. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.